Hey everyone, welcome to The Front Porch. I'm Brian Beaudry. Today I'm going to talk to James Auerbach, the VP of the event segment at the ARA, American Rental Association, in case you didn't know. We talked about a whole bunch of stuff, including his journalism career, his uh, previous lives, doing event management, event production, running a restaurant, doing all kinds of things. He was basically a crazy, busy man, just working all the time. And now he's learned about some of the life lessons he's learned from that. If you'd like to hear more from leaders in the rental industry, uh, subscribe to the Point of Rental podcast on the podcast platform of your choice. Rate us, subscribe, review if you have nice things to say. If you don't have nice things to say, then, you know, let me know about it privately, marketing at pointofrental.com. You don't have to make these things public. Also, I want to point out that uh, the recording for this is going to sound a little bit weird. I had to re-record all my audio and some of my intonations might be a little weird. So I was not hostile whenever I was talking to him. So let's just get that straight. Uh, I like James. Good guy. Glad to have him on the show. And now we're going to go right to James and my conversation. Welcome to The Front Porch with Brian Beaudry. Okay, let's get to the basics. Who are you? Where are you from? And what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Well, my, my name is James Auerbach, and I'm currently living in Raleigh, North Carolina. Been here since 1999-2000, and uh, love it here. I'm currently the vice president for the event segment with the American Rental Association, and I've uh, been here since November of 19. Oh, see, there's a mistake. November of 20. The years seem to have... Uh, blurred over the last couple of years. I've been given a lot of great advice. Some um, I've asked for, some that's just been offered. But I think the one thing that's always stuck with me was to lead with positive intent. And I had a, a manager way back when who always said that, said, no matter how you lead, if you're leading with positive intent, people will want to work both with you and for you. And I always saw it as with me. That's always been something I've tried to follow. So what does that mean, positive intent? It means that there's different types of leaders, and I think we all have experienced them. There's some that are 95% punitive and 5% everything else. I'm a big believer that most of the way we lead should be mentoring, coaching, training, and really helping people advance. That sounds like a good leadership take for an advocacy group or someone helping guide an industry. Well, I think you can teach people the way to do it in a way that helps them versus a way that just creates more problems. Okay, now that we've given everyone something valuable to take away from this, let's get into your backstory a little bit. You're an industry leader, a traveling dad, someone that I was told that I had to have on the podcast. When you were like 8 to 10 years old, elementary school age, what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, going back then, the one thing I can remember clearly is I always was selling something. You know, whether it was in the different groups we were in or school type things, I always enjoyed selling. I think it was the interaction with other people and... um, I don't know if I was good at it back then, but I know I liked doing it. Um, So I thought it'd be something in the realm of sales. Uh, Over the years, that kind of changed. And by the time I was in high school, I was leaning towards some different things. But, you know, the earliest memory I can do was always selling something. So you're that kid who was really out there selling, in my day's world, fine chocolate. But is that what you were selling back then? We were selling candy. We were selling, you know, breaking apart candy and selling candy in schools when you could do stuff like that. And, uh, you know, it was always fun to see how far you could uh, trade up. What was the best trade up that you ever had? I think that we went from Skittles all the way up to Reese's peanut butter cups. You felt like you had a big jump. 
I see you're a fellow journalism major. Why did you go with that? So by the time I got to high school, I really enjoyed writing. And I was kind of torn at that point between three, you know, lifelong, what was I going to do? It was either, you know, potentially journalism. Uh, at that time, physical therapy was a real exciting new career. And the other was being a chef. So I realized soon on that the the chef thing was more fun. Um, it wasn't something I thought I would would do forever. And, and so it really came down to physical therapy and journalism. And where I lived in the Northeast, we had a couple amazing schools in the Boston, Connecticut, that whole uh, New England area. I just loved to write. I wasn't sure if it was going to be as a novelist or a reporter, but I think I had this illusion that I was going to be covering sports for some major city like the, you know, the Boston Celtics back then. I can relate. So are you from the Boston region then? Yeah, I grew up a little bit south of Boston. Did you ever have professional goals within journalism? Or did you kind of know what you were doing and you just said, look, I need to get this degree done with and get out of here? No, I actually went to college for journalism. So I ended up going to the University of Connecticut. Uh, UConn was, was a big, fun school when I was coming out of high school. And uh, a lot of people I knew had gone there. And they had one of the top journalism programs in the region, as well as this very well-known physical therapy program. The physical therapy program was extremely competitive to get into, and they only took a couple people each year. So um, I started off in journalism, quickly realized, you know, once I got to college that I didn't really enjoy some of the biology and some of the other things that were part of the physical therapy degree. And so I, you know, went journalism, you know, all out for the four years and graduated with a, a degree in journalism. And it was, um, it was a great learning experience, especially at that school, which had some wonderful teachers and some real pros. Did you ever cover anything? Were you writing for the school paper or anything, or just were you just being a student in journalism? Yeah, I wrote for the school paper for four years, um, had both an op-ed piece and a couple of like assignment type pieces. Um, it was uh, it was great experience. You know, they had a full daily newspaper at the University of Connecticut. They still do called the Daily Campus. And uh, yeah, it was a nice run for four years of, of writing for that and trying to gain experience writing in a way that people would want to read whatever your next article was. Was there anything cool going on at UConn at the time that you got to write about? And you can say, yeah, I was there for that. I, I covered that. That was me. Yeah. If you, if, if you really went far back in the archives, and I don't know if they exist, but um, I was there when Jim Calhoun and Gino Oriema, the, the, the great coaches that UConn had for the past 20, 30 years, were actually hired. And they were hired the years that I was there. And, and before all the championships started, both on the women's and men's side, but um, the the big pavilion, which is still on campus, was actually built the years we were there. So we got to cover all of that. And we got to cover the one of the best women's teams in the country that at that time, no one went to see except for a couple hundred folks. And, you know, flash forward to today, and they fill up 20,000 seat arenas. Okay, your first job listed on your LinkedIn is as a VP of sales. Did you start your career as a VP? How did that work? <laughs> no, I absolutely didn't. Um, you know, I, as I came out of college, there were no journalism jobs. So at that time, in the very early 90s, most of the print papers were consolidating or going away. And USA Today had just started. And it was just a very different climate out there. I really had no desire to go to the middle of the country at that time and cover some small town sports. And um, I was all Northeast and big city. And that's where I thought I wanted to be. So there were no journalism jobs that made sense. So I immediately started, uh, I had a series of sales jobs right out of college that kind of led me um, quickly up the ranks. I, I was lucky enough to work with some amazing 
leaders and trainers and, and, and led some organizations in sales. So I was able to quickly move from a general manager position to a regional position and then into more uh, VP positions, um, running organizations that were growing very quickly. Okay, so you didn't really go into journalism after school. Did you feel like what you learned was still useful? I enjoyed writing and, and I was able to use it almost immediately. And almost everything we did, email was exploding and becoming the normal communication. And in many of the places that I worked, um, especially early on, we didn't have lots of resources. So we were writing the press releases and we were writing all the training manuals and SOPs. And so I got to use a lot of those skills hands-on, you know, practically, you know, running those businesses. Okay. So when you started out, you were at World Gym, is that correct? Early part of my career was was interesting because it was um, a lot with health and fitness and hospitality. And since I was in those major markets in both DC and New York City, these were you know, pretty amazing multi-million dollar businesses. We didn't necessarily see people working out. We saw, you know, uh, monthly payments coming in from tens of thousands of customers. And it was a large business to manage, both from the daily operations to the financial side of it. And we were growing so quickly that we were creating a lot of the processes of how the company scaled. So yeah, I, I worked at um, Crunch Fitness originally, which was a uh, which was a, at that time a tiny little, not the big franchise everyone knows today. It was a tiny little aerobic studio chain in New York City that quickly grew to a multi-million dollar full service fitness chain. And then switched companies over to World Gym and worked with just one of the most wonderful owners I ever had the uh, you know real honor to work with. And he was one of the first World Gym owners in the country and had the New York City market and Miami and a lot of these really busy, big markets. And again, same thing, got to experience a lot of high profile events, a lot of big launches. We also at that time were opening up restaurants and we were also putting on events. So from way back then where there was, you know, large all day um, aerobic type events for charity or road races or other charity events we were involved in. That was kind of my first forelay into, you know, formally planning events um, around, you know, the businesses that I was helping to manage. Are these all things that you're managing on site or is this remote work and you've been living the remote life work forever? Because like New York City, DC, Miami, they're not exactly neighbors. No, th those jobs were definitely hands-on on-site. In New York City, we had corporate offices, you know, right on the Upper West Side, right at one of our stores, and we we worked in the in the businesses, and we would just go between the different units that we were working in, and um, yeah, it was extremely hands-on. Um, one of the things I I don't know if pride is the right word, but I do like to say that I never had that huge company experience where I came in. And everything was already pre-made and multi-billions of dollars behind. You know, most of my early career was really hands-on, um, you know, creating the different materials, working with all of our team from every levels of the business and figuring out how to do it better or come up with better solutions. And I was able to use a lot of those skills as I continued to move forward. Um, I'm always believed that being hands-on is a whole lot better than trying to manage from some ivory tower. Okay, so you left World Gym and you decided to open a jazz and blues cafe. Why that? Are you a big fan of the music? And you went from running places in New York City and Miami to North Carolina. Was that just because you couldn't decide on which place you wanted to go? So you just split the difference and stayed there? No. So so at that time, you know, running the World Gyms in New York, we also had a couple of different restaurants and the owner had a variety of different businesses that we were totally involved in. And as I saw more about how they were run and how we were setting up these businesses as we kept opening up 
additional businesses, I said, you know, I think I can do that. And I always had a desire to own my own business or at least try. Um, and with a couple of the partners that I had a relationship with, um, longtime business relationship with, we said, hey, we're going to try to open up a restaurant. And the two locations we were looking at were either in D.C., where my partners were located, or potentially in North Carolina. And so that's kind of how I moved south, 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 and ended up in Raleigh, North Carolina. They're just the timing and the location was right. Um, my partner at that time, my business partner's father was the chef, and he was in Raleigh. So we opened up a seven-day-a-week, seven-day-a-week live entertainment, full you know, Southern fair jazz and blues restaurant. And it, it really was wonderful. We were a little bit ahead of what's happened in Raleigh. At that time, we thought the new convention center and all the downtown renovations and remodeling would happen, you know, early 2000s. It actually was almost a decade or more later, but we had a great run for, you know, two, three years of, of just packed business and um, a lot of really wonderful contacts and relationships were made during those times. And then we had an opportunity to sell and get out with no bills. And if you know uh, the restaurant business, most of them don't make it or people are uh, financially upside down. We had a great opportunity, so we were able to step away. Nice. Yeah, I, I don't know a whole lot about it. I just used to watch Food Network a lot. And yeah, they mentioned fairly frequently that it's not a great industry for tons of profits and that most of them fail pretty quickly. It's it, it's definitely a it's it's a large undertaking. You spend a tremendous amount of time hands on. I mean, it's their twenty hour days are the norm when you're running a full service restaurant. But um, at the end, you know, I still have relationships with many of the servers, the bartenders, the managers, uh, the vendors that we worked with, and this is you know twenty five years ago. So many of those relationships were really strong. I noticed that you didn't mention the chefs there, and you said that you wanted to be a chef earlier. Is there like a rivalry thing going on there? No, there was no rivalry. I, I, that, if anything, reinforced the fact that uh, I wasn't built for that. They, they, they were extremely talented. Uh, my partner's father was about as close to a genius in the kitchen as you can come as far as creating food and, and, and really putting out a high output of, of high quality food. And yeah, I probably would never have been able to live up to what he, you know, that level of skill. Hey, everyone. Are you ready to laugh? It's time for Jonathan's Jokes. Let's give him a hand. All right, dear uh, Point of Rental friends, I come with you with some jokes today. Okay, here's another favorite of mine. Apparently, I have a bunch of favorites, but what does a nosy pepper do? Gets jalapeno business. You sold the ANSI's two years later to get into a couple of different businesses. Why was that? So during that time when we had this open, we were doing seven-day-a-week live entertainment, both indoors and outdoors. We were putting on concerts, again, more and more into the event-type space. It was decision time. We sold the business. Was I either moving back to New York City? Um, I had a relationship here locally. And um, a friend of mine owned a restaurant bar chain next to my, next to us. And he also owned an, an event business called Showtime Events that was really exploding for lack of a better term. This is, you know, mid 2000s before the first, you know, big economic crash. And, um, and he said, hey, you know, 
would you be interested in staying in North Carolina, working with, with the team here? And, and we had two businesses, primary, the restaurant chain and the Showtime events chain that was in multiple states. And, and it, was, it, it was, again, another very wonderful experience of building a company and watching it grow and being part of that growth and being a, a part of the team that really helped drive that growth. And um, that was about the next 10 years was producing events all over the country, opening up our own venues, having a large rental inventory and in multiple warehouses in different states and also growing a uh, restaurant chain, which was, you know, another education that was kind of related, but um, again, really helpful from a learning process. So you were a VP of two different businesses at the same time for 10 years. Do you sleep? Like, how do you do that? So I don't think I can take all the credit. There's some wonderful people working in these companies that you're talking about. I mean, some really amazing leaders who still are there in some cases. Showtime is still thriving. Um, the restaurant chain is still open. Uh, and those those people that I worked with back then really, really were the, the heart and soul of, of, of what we did. We traveled a lot. We, we spent a lot of time on the road. We were in our businesses. We tried to really make sure that those time spent in these businesses was really productive. We weren't just flying in and being quote unquote corporate. We were, you know, working with the team, trying to really find out what the issues were, good, bad, or other, and then trying to solve problems. And, um, you know, for the most part, the best thing that that period of my time afforded me was it was kind of a national exposure. I saw people all over the country, um, relationships that were got much, much wider than where I had been. We were working with event vendors, um, both on the production side and the rental side, um, in almost every market in the country and some cases international. So it was really an opportunity to meet a lot of people that are still in the business today, still have relationships with them today. And um, really for me, it was an opportunity to learn from some people that had much more experience than I had. Then you decided to take it easy, I guess, working only in event rentals. Why did you stay on the events production side of things instead of going back to running restaurants? So the, the restaurant side, similar to my experience, you know, at my own place, it's a challenge. And so when, when the world kind of ended the first time in 2007 and eight, a lot of those, um, those businesses struggled. And that wasn't because they were doing anything wrong. It was just because everybody was scared and, um, and people stopped spending money. And so there was a lot of different factors that made that a challenge. Um, the event side was, 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 almost recession-proof. I mean, sure, some of the events went away for a short period back then, but really rebounded quickly. The social events kept happening. You know, we shifted gears from doing a lot of corporate work to doing a lot of social work. And we had this large inventory in all these warehouses, and we started renting more. So we went from more full-service production and design to actually full, you know, production design and rentals. So it gave me a taste of both sides of the business. Um, you know, my biggest takeaway from those times was we did, from a volume perspective, way more jobs to do the same amount of revenue. But we kept the business open, the businesses kept thriving, and uh, and kept growing even through those periods, which was which was pretty nice. So at this point, are you working at event rental yet, or no? So if Showtime events, I would say that was mostly the time when we were doing production. So that's. Uh, I've been lucky enough to work on both sides of kind of the event world with about 10 plus years on the production side and design and, and really event producing side. And then I jumped. So I left Showtime and, and I went to much more on the true traditional um, party and event rental side where we were renting the full gamut of full service uh, rental products from tents, tables, chairs, linens, 
China and everything in between. So when I made that switch, that's been pretty much the last 10 to 15 years has been all on the event rental side. I've asked a lot of people this, but basically, why do you like rental so much? I, I still tell people when I'm doing interviews today, I get asked that all the time. Like, what's the what's the real interesting thing about the whole you know live event industry? And, and I say it, say this to this day, even 25 plus years later in the business, every day is different. Every client you work with is a little different. Every you know now in my current role, every member we talk to is a little bit different situation. Sure, we all basically rent the same things, maybe some different colors, maybe some larger amounts of quantities. But the reality is, is that every day is different and relationships is so important. That's really what we're renting is relationships. And I loved that part. I loved knowing people, getting to know them and more than just fake friends. I like to really kind of get to know them. So when we saw each other again, it was an honest catch up. It was great seeing them and those kind of relationships and that kind of building of relationships has been really what's kept me in the business this long. It's each day we meet someone new, it's just amazingly interesting, or what a story, or what an amazing journey they took from beginning to where they are. And I just love it. I can't imagine being in an office every day doing the same data entry or the same whatever. I would go insane. Good. So it sounds like you're going to have a lot of people to tell me about so I can get them on the show at some point later on, right? Absolutely. I see you founded RSPF Associates last year, and it says you're into building profitable sales and ops teams and equipment rental. Is there anything you had to learn on the equipment rental side of things that was different from how event production works? Not, not like anything major, I can say. And I also can add that that was, I mean, I was between jobs. So when the pandemic hit and I had just worked, just exited one of the large chains that I, I was able to work with for a couple of years, the pandemic hit just timing wise, and there wasn't you know, obviously everybody was battening down the hatches and trying to figure out expenses. And we really were in a, a tough spot as an industry. So I saw an opportunity to do some consulting. Um, there were a couple of people that said, hey, can you, you know, help us with whatever it was that they were, were working on? So I set up the consulting arm to try to take some of that experience that I'd amassed over the previous 20 years and put it into actual use, like be able to come in and try to make targeted changes with people that were looking for that type of help. I like that you decided, you know what? Now's the time to build another business. Yeah, I, I, you know, I couldn't sit still, if that makes sense. Everyone was looking for a job, but at that point I was just trying to figure out how I could support the industry. And I saw a way that I could, you know, with some people that had some real targeted needs. And so I was able to, you know, assist them for a short period of time. Yeah, having looked at through your LinkedIn, it seems like, yeah, this guy knows how to help you grow and get a lot better at you know, just business in general. That's been the focus, but I think that was drilled into me by some great previous leaders that, you know, and, and, and another, you asked early on what your know, best piece of advice, the other best piece of advice that I still today have written on my wall here in my office is, is it actionable or is it interesting? And so I always am asking myself that if I feel I'm getting sidetracked, well, is this just interesting and I'm going to sit here all day and get nothing accomplished or is it actually actionable? And those are words that I've tried to use in every aspect of the business. And I'm guilty of drifting to the interesting at times and and realizing that it wasn't productive or helpful for the companies I was with. So now I really try to focus on, you know, is, is are all the activities that I'm part of actionable 
for the betterment of that company or that business. Okay, I think I can see why you'd be pretty well qualified to be the VP of the ARA's event segment. Why did you choose to take the job though? So during the time we were just talking about where I wasn't actively working with one one company or one organization, um, I was trying to figure out how I could help. Um, you know, we were drowning as an industry. Um, the event industry was pretty much shut down, all live events and of course event rental because of gathering restrictions that we all lived through over the last year, year and a half. I'd been active in almost all of the associations, um, including ARA. I'd been a member for you know almost a decade through the different organizations I was part of, as well as some other associations. And what I didn't see at the time was a lot of proactive action happening. Um, what I did see was that our industry was kind of being forgotten. Okay, there's no gatherings. Well, it didn't really seem that there was a great awareness in the public of all the people involved in putting these gatherings on. And, and as you started to go, you know, even further back, it wasn't just the event rental folks or the, you know, the decors or the planners, but I mean, it, it affected everyone, the, the hotels and the airline industry and, and, and the car rentals and just every aspect snowballed back from the event world that I had been part of for, you know, 20 plus years. So I reached out to a couple of the associations and said, hey, I'm available and free. I'd like to volunteer. What can I do to help? And unfortunately, what I found was a lot of the organizations weren't at that time doing anything. They, 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 they weren't sure what to do or they didn't have an advocacy arm as part of the association's normal operating. So when I talked to ARA, I was, I was lucky enough to get connected to Tony, our CEO, and, and we, we had a real interesting conversation. We talked about the ARA and we talked about what was going on with the segment. And really, in the end, the conversation really focused on what could we do? What could be done to support the industry, the event segment specifically? in a greater capacity, not just through the pandemic, but long-term. So he and I talked and, and, we, and, and basically for that whole summer, I consulted for the ARA and undertook a project of really diving into what made the membership valuable to the members. And we did that for over that six months and it was really eye-opening and, um, and I was able to get very involved in supporting the industry and figuring out what the next steps would be. I would think that in a way, it was kind of really convenient that you left your previous position just before the pandemic. I mean, if you're running an event rental business at the time, you're probably just focused on keeping your own head above water rather than being able to focus on the entire industry like that. Yeah, it was it was definitely timing. And I've, I've had some very interesting and advantageous timing in my career. You know, the challenge with last summer and, and the project was I was able to speak to over 100 plus operators and find out what the ARA meant to them. The problem with that is that I was able to speak to 100 plus operators because they were all available because nobody had work. It was as gut-wrenching of, of a summer as I've ever had because I was talking to people that I knew very well in some cases and some I didn't. They all had common experiences of watching their lifelong businesses in some cases evaporating and having to take very drastic steps of selling buildings that were in their families for years or you know, looking for different quote unquote pivots, and I hate that word now, but different things to do to keep their businesses afloat. But what I was able to get out of that was some very honest answers because I let people just, you know, vent and unload. And then I would be able, I, I try to bring them back and say, okay, look, you've been a member for 20 years of the ARA. Why? And, and it was a time where people were very, very honest. And so I think from a timing perspective, it was really helpful to kind of focus what the association either needed to do or should be looking at moving forward. 
So what should you be looking at moving forward? Well, I mean, what, what was pretty obvious that came out of all the discussions with everyone was that there's really four pillars. But at the end of the day, all those pillars are about making sure that the membership has value. And everyone at ARA, especially on the membership team, has heard me say almost on a daily basis, it's our job to find the one thing that makes the membership valuable to each person. Everyone joined for a reason. I don't care what it is, the education we have, the show, the magazine, ARA insurance, all the great programs we have for the members, whatever it is, it's our job to figure out what that is and then help the members get there. We're very lucky. We have this amazing show, arguably the best show in the industry. I'd say the best. That happens every year. We have ARA insurance, you know, one of the only insurances for the event rental industry. And again, pillars for us. It's really great. We have the largest magazine in the whole industry, rental, you know, management that, you know, is pretty much read universally by everyone, whether you're a member or not. We have all these great things. And then we have this, this education piece, this massive amount of education that half our members don't even know exists. You know, all these different tools and training and different things available to help them run their businesses. It should be relatively easy to find value for our members. But that's the challenge that we face every day. And that's really what came out of that. It's our job to not only create that value, but help our members realize it. So that's something we're focused on every day. Yeah, I'm pretty familiar with the, okay, we've created this. Now can we get people to actually see it? Know it's there for them to educate or entertain them? That, that aspect of things. The talent at ARA is so great. Like I, I've said this before, I can't imagine like what other associations do because at our association, ARA, we have an education team, a marketing team, and these folks are like pro pros, like people I would have loved to have worked with in all my previous companies on the teams that we had. And they crank out all this amazing, amazing, whether it's materials or advertising and all, I mean, our show team who puts on the show each year, it's one of the biggest shows. I mean, it's a Herculean effort and they pull it off, you know, each year without, you know, even a hitch. It's pretty amazing, the people that work at ARA. And so I was pretty honored to become part of that team and hopefully, you know, help support those efforts. But um, you're so right. You create all this wonderful stuff and then they say you got to get it in everybody's hands or get time for them to, to look at it while they're running their businesses. Yeah, it's not, it's not at all like Field of Dreams. And if you build it, they will come. No, absolutely not. What does a vice president of the event segment do? It's a good question. And, you know, I've thought about this a lot. And I know you had Josh Nickel on a couple shows ago. And Josh and I work very close together. He's the VP of the equipment segment. And we talk about this all the time. And I think now after seven, eight months, nine months of officially working at ARA, I really feel that there's two key parts to, to this position. The first part is to be a resource for our team. Internally, to be that segment-specific resource leader, whatever you want to call. So when we're working on different materials, whatever it may be, or different um, programs for our members, there's someone internally that the members can, that the staff can come to, they can talk to, they can get answers, and they can quickly um, turn around those different things as fast as possible. And what's great about that is that, you know, if I don't know the answer, which many times I don't, I can go and get somebody now. I can pick up a phone and, and, and help our team get quicker answers. That's the, the main goal. You know, the other thing that I, I truly feel with, with our internal team is hopefully Josh and I can vet different things that are coming through with members, call members up and say, hey, would this be helpful for you? And so that our team has a little more steering, a little more focus of what we're working on that the members really want. The second part, it's to be connecting with members. I spend 
more than half my time talking to our members on the phone and even more so over the last, you know, what's gone on the last year. It doesn't matter what size the members are. I don't care if you're a brand new business just started or you're a well-established business that's been around for a long time. Those conversations have been so valuable, you know, allowing the members to feel there's someone working at the association who has worked in the industry for a long enough time that hopefully there's value to the discussions. I have members now that call up and say, hey, we're thinking about doing this. We're all too close to it. Can I bounce this idea off you? And I love that. I'm very, very brutally honest with my feedback or my thoughts. And they don't always agree, but hopefully I'm a resource now that they can go to and they can um, either get feedback or, or, or get ideas. And I'm happy to share things that I've done over the different places I've been as well. And maybe there's an idea in there, which is helpful. In a nutshell, that's what we do. And, and that's a long answer, but it really is two things, internal resource for our team and an external resource for our members. The ARA show is coming up. Do you have anything interesting to share about that or anything else the ARA is doing? This will be airing in mid-August, so it'll be public by then. You can mention it here, and I promise not to tell. Yeah, I mean, it's really exciting. We're excited, and to see the amount of people that are registering, to see registration pacing like every year at a normal show, to see the show floor almost completely full of vendors, um, the rooms are all going fast You know, for the host hotels. I mean, we're looking forward to a really busy show. And there were always a little concern because the dates changed because of COVID. We had to push everything. But right now, it looks like we're going to have a, you know, a packed show floor. We're going to have all the vendors there. We're going to have a lot of people coming out to look at you know, different products to buy or purchase for their business. And I think it's going to be, you know, I think everyone wants to get out. So even though it's October, most people can get there on a Monday or Tuesday or a Wednesday, you know, earlier in the week and, and come see what's on the show floor. So the positive thing to report right now is that registration is on pace like every year. The show floor is booking like the regular years, and we expect it to be a full and busy show like every year in the past, which is exciting. Uh, one of my colleagues here was asking if you feel like you can say events are back. I'm not sure that that's the right word for it, but do you feel like things that are at a level where you can call it back? Well, it's day by day, as everybody knows, with what's going on you know, around us. But are events back? Yes. Is business back at the level it was in 19? Probably not because we all have a labor challenge. You know, there, there aren't as many um, folks available and all of our stores are, are looking for labor. You know, in some cases they've gone on to other careers. The people that had worked with us, you know, and unfortunately for a year had to go out and do other things. In some cases, they're just not back yet. So the biggest challenge facing the event industry right now is labor. I mean, there's no lack of jobs and everyone's busy, which is great. A lot of people catching up from jobs that were pushed off or just normal jobs for this time of the year. But um, the biggest challenge for everyone right now is labor. Okay, let's get back to positivity a little bit. What's one of your favorite stories from the industry over the past year? Well, if you ask me what the most inspiring thing about the last year is, it's the resiliency of all of the owners in the business. I mean, if you think about how many owners were down, you know, business operators were down 50 to 100% of their business and they figured it out, I don't know of anything more motivating. The, the stories I've, I've heard of, of what people did to make it through the last 12 months will forever be motivational. I mean, th there will never be a situation where somebody will say, you can't do it after this. And there are thousands of those stories in the event rental and the live event industry of people that persevered, that did whatever they had to do, and many of them kept their employees on at their own detriment 
financially. They kept their employees on, they kept paying their staff because they cared that much about them. To me, that's the most positive thing that came out of this. The second related positive thing that came out of this is many businesses realized that they could operate leaner and more profitably and still get the job done. Okay, that wasn't a specific one, but I'll allow it. That's fair. What's one trait that successful leaders have in common, in your opinion? I'm going to go back to where I started. They all lead with positive intent. I rarely know a successful leader who is a dictator and is, you know, constantly yelling and constantly, you know, people dislike working for them, a real successful leader. Almost all of them I know at any size level business, they're motivating, inspirational, they're coaches, mentors. And, and that to me is the trait that I think is universally uh, how, you, how you're successful and how you get people to follow you. You're often posting about being a traveling dad. How do you balance family obligations and the call of the road? Is this something you've had to have discussions about with your family? Are they invited on an occasional road trip? So that's an interesting question because it's become almost a joke, the whole on the road again, dad thing, which started a decade ago. So there's a good 10 plus years in there where I traveled anywhere from two to four days a week, some weeks more. And um, it definitely is a unique lifestyle that not everybody is built for. At the same time, we have two, you know, middle-aged children uh, right now at 11 and 14. So for a big bulk of those years, I was on the road. The only thing that I can say, and the only reason why that was even possible is because of my wife, who's a superhero. And um, she works a full-time job and she manages the kids' lives, which is insanity. You know, both of my kids are very active in sports and other things like that. And um, none of it would have been possible without you know, everything that my wife has done over all these years of traveling. And, you know, we, we never really had like a formal discussion about it. It was just the way my career was going and it was where the work was. But kind of unspoken is when I'm home, I try to take everything off her plate I can. You know, whether it's even a simple drive up the street or the kids, you know, there's no discussion or complaint or even talk about it. My goal has always been, I understand how hard it has been for her to be a full-time successful professional and manage our family basically while I've been traveling at such a high extent. So it was never a formal discussion, but I think um, I think my wife's pretty amazing. Great. That seems like a good way to end the regular conversation. Let's get into the five important questions. Five important questions. Five important, five important questions. questions. Five important questions. What would you say is your greatest success in life? Family, no question. What I just said, my entire family is spectacular in every way. And that's mainly because again, my wife, but we have happy kids. And I know how hard it is in this world of all the stuff today to say that, but I have two kids that are smiling all the time, are happy and I hope that never changes. And I feel like, you know, our family relationship and our unit and the way we talk to each other and the way we, um, you know, care and respect each other, it's special. So that's, that, that's the easy answer. Greatest success is my family. If you could go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice when you started your career, what would it be? Less 12-hour days and less traveling. <laughs> it goes hand in hand. Um, you know, life is too short. And the old joke about, uh, you know, when that day comes and you're on your deathbed, you're never going to go, damn, I should have worked another 14-hour day. I mean, that's true. And, and you know, a couple of years ago, my, my father you know, passed away and it was, um, you know, a weird four-week diagnosis to passing. And it was 
one of those, you know, terrible cancer situations. And it just reinforced what we just said. It's that there's no amount of work, no amount of travel, no amount of cool events or managing big companies. None of it that matters ultimately versus spending time with your family or very close friends or whoever's important to you. I think a lot of what I did could have been accomplished in less hours, probably less traveling. And that's on me. You know, that's something I should have consciously um, done, but I'm definitely doing it now. What's your most embarrassing moment in your career? There's been a few times that I've been on open mics during events where we're openly talking about something in the event, whether it's something going on or, you know, or a situation just happened. And in those are times where now I am extremely careful to make sure that those mics are closed. Um, you know, whether it's talking about a particular piece of production or a performer or something that happened. And it was never mean intended. It was never, you know, in any way derogatory, but it should have been on a closed mic. Well, I'm sorry to tell you this, James, but you've been sentenced to death because it's illegal to speak into a hot mic now. And it's a capital offense. So what is your last meal and why? So my last meal, that's interesting because I love food. So if I had to choose, it would have to be a giant, real, amazing cheeseburger with everything on it, you know, stacked high and all the toppings and condiments with a large side of crinkle fries and not crinkle fries with all that seasoning and Old Bay and fancy stuff people like, plain crinkle fries with ketchup. Um, you know, a good cheeseburger to me is amazing. And then a close second would be sushi. I love sushi. You're a man after my own heart with the burgers, man. I, I'll pass on the sushi. I, I can't go with you down that road, but burgers, perfect. Favorite cheeseburger place? Oh, my favorite now is uh, Whataburger because, you know, I live in Texas, so I have to. They have an amazing mushroom Swiss that I just love. Whataburger is good. I um, If we're going chains, I love Five Guys. You know, I always battle with my friends. Five Guys or In-N-Out Burger, depending on what coast you're on. But if I'm down south, I'll go for Whataburger as well. If you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? Delegate more. Go back to kind of that previous conversation we had about the amount of hours and times. I have always probably, not to my own advantage, said, I'll just do it. You know, and that kind of contributes a lot to the, you know, still working at 10 at night or 11 at night. Um, and and part of that has been trust. You know, I, I now have a much greater appreciation and trust for the people that I work with. And, you know, that's shame on me for, for many years saying, well, I'll just do it. Now, you know, I, I, I realize that the people are, that I work with are pretty amazing and um, talented and in many cases know a whole lot more than I'll ever know. And so um, letting them do whatever those things are that we're talking about. So delegating more was always kind of the big one for me. Okay, if you could change one thing about the rental industry, what would it be? So this one is kind of a, a big soapbox for me, it should be looked at as a, a legitimate career. And it's not. I mean, if you go out, I'm 30 years in the business, 25 years, and I still have friends and family say, well, what exactly do you do? It's incredible to me that the event rental industry or risk rental in general doesn't have more exposure and legitimacy as a career path. We have people that start in all levels of the business, but whether it's in the warehouse, a driver and sales, and move up to run these multi, multi-million dollar event rental companies. I mean, that's a career. And, 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 and they make great money and they have great jobs and a lot of responsibility. But there needs to be a lot more exposure and recognition that the rental industry and specifically the event rental industry is a legitimate 
career path. You know, we employ thousands and thousands and thousands of people at all levels from front of the house to back of the house, whether it's warehouse or sales or admin. But we're always struggling to find them because we're not an industry that people recognize as I want to work there. And we, we have to do a better job making that the case. What is your spirit spice? You're talking about alcohol, correct? Well, if you're talking about alcohol, I like Bombay tonic with two limes. So I'm a gin drinker. Okay, I think you're taking it the opposite way of what was intended. But I like I like where your head's at. You're talking so if anyone about- wants to get you a drink at the area, <laughs> it Okay, tell me a secret about the rental industry. So I don't know if this is a secret, but in my opinion, after all these years, the single most important thing for an operator in the rental industry to do is to exceed expectations all of the time. For delivery, be early. For products, make sure every product is perfect, working, and rental ready. And for customer service, you have to over-communicate and be proactive. Where the industry gets in trouble or where certain companies get in trouble is they either overextend themselves or they poorly communicate to their customers or they don't provide what they advertised. And if you look at the really successful companies in the space, all of them over-exceed expectations. And I think that's the only way you can successfully operate. So if you've got crappy customer service, you're going to get called on it. If you've got crappy equipment and you don't maintain it and you don't replace it when need be, you're going to get called on it or you're just going to lose customers. And then finally, if you're not honest and communicating with your customers, you don't really have relationships there. You don't have partnerships that last for many, many years, in some case, decades. You have one-time customers and, and you're struggling to repeat it. So always exceed expectations in the rental model, in my opinion. So what percentage of an events company revenue is coming from repeat customers? Most of the uh, the studies that we've ever done is you're looking at 60 plus percent. And if you think about the quote on account customers where you're talking about your, you know, your planners, caterers, venues, universities, those repeat customers that annually are doing a lot of their business with you, um, that's a tremendous amount of your annual revenue. So it's typically, you know, 60 to 70 plus percent is repeat customers and the rest are your homeowners and your one-time customers. See you at the ARA show? Absolutely. I'm looking forward to seeing you and everybody in person. You know, I hope to never do a Zoom meeting again, even though I know they're now part of our daily operations. But um, yeah, I can't wait to see everybody in person in October in Vegas. All right, James, thank you for spending some time with me today. Uh, I look forward to seeing you at the ARA show and have a great rest of your day. Thank you very much, Brian. I enjoyed it. That's a great question. And I wish more people asked it. I love French fries. And somewhere in the last couple of years, it became fashionable to cover them in all kinds of stuff, whether it's spices or seasoning. I just want plain fries with a lot of ketchup.